today's scripture reading is Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 to chapter 4, verse 9. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, thus stand Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Santiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by power and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of your God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if I'm kind of echoey on the sides, I will tell you it's maybe easier to hear in the back. We're still messing with our... Uh, the way the acoustics work in here. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to be with you. I, I appreciate you guys welcoming uh, Jason Sika last week, a church planner in Wilmington. Uh, I was away on Father-Son weekend with three of my boys at camp. It was awesome. And, uh, but it's, it, I really appreciate your welcoming him. We're really excited to be a church that is about church planning and supports church planning. Before I jump into today's sermon, I want to, um, as I've been doing a lot this summer, sort of remind you big picture what we're about as a church. And so I want to take one moment today and talk briefly about the city. Um, we're a church that has talked about, has been very self-conscious about being a church that is a city church, that is a church that is uh, in the city. And we're very cognizant of our context. You see it all over our website. You hear about it in home meetings. We talk about being in the city. Um, but as, as our elders were away this spring, we talked a lot about what it means to be a city church. And we've, we've defined this. We've said, you know, uh, one of our elders came up with this statement. And I thought it was really helpful for us to think about and to pray about as a community. You know, we're a church that is in the city, right? We meet within the physical You've figured this out this morning because you're here. The, the geographical boundaries of Philadelphia. So, and we've, known, we've, we've made that part of our identity. We're in the city self-consciously. But, and we've said, you know, we want to be a church that's for the city, that really is positive about the place that we live in. And it, it seeks to be involved in our neighborhoods. And, you know, we've encouraged all of your home meetings to come up with mercy ministries that you can be involved in locally. We've said, hey, being a part of this city, we want to seek, as we read in the book of, um, in the book of Jeremiah, the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has placed us. But one thing that we continue to pray about, and we ask the, our congregation to pray about, is what does it mean for liberty to not just be in the city, and not just to be for the city, but to be of the city? To be part of the fabric 
to be woven in to this community and you being woven in to, and your home meeting being woven into your neighborhood in such a way that people, it, it's, you can't tell where one stops and the other one starts. You see, you know, a, a church that's not just like, hey, we're going to do some nice things to bless our neighborhood, but we're sort of just, by the way we live our lives, we're seeking God's blessing upon people who have nothing to do with Jesus, have nothing to do with the church, and really it's not about liberty, it's not about those things at all. It's just sort of automatic the way we live our lives. That's one of the things, that's, that's easy for me to talk about, being in the city and being for the city. But one thing that we need to engage in as a community as we move forward this next year is, what does it mean for us to be of the city? How to be part of the fabric? How to be a part of the blessing of the city? I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I would ask you to be praying about those things for this, this year as we seek to live life with Christ in this place together. Let's pray. Let me lead us. Father, we pray that you would guide us as a community. And many of us are here for many reasons, for schooling, for jobs, because uh, we're here because of family. We're here because this is sort of where life has placed us today. But Lord, we pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see, and, and, and the kind of imagination that captures what it means for us as a community to really be of this place, to really seek the blessing of this place, to love well. Jesus, we're, we're, we have no answers to that. We pray that you would lead us. Would you guide us in those things? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excited to be back um, looking with you again this morning at the book of Philippians. And um, as we're looking at this passage, I want to ask you, you know, uh, and this is not an illustration that I came up with. I'm borrowing this from someone else, and I will give it back to them when they're done. Um, you know, if you've ridden on an airplane any time in the last 30 years, uh, you're familiar with a fastened seatbelt light. You know, you're very familiar with the fastened seatbelt light. And the fastened seatbelt light comes on during three critical parts of plane travel, right? It comes on when you're taking off. You expect that. That's good comes on when you're about to land. We're all good with that one. But it comes on when you hit turbulence. And this is, the, this is you know, of the three times you see, you know, the fastened seatbelt sign, this is the kicker. This is the one that you're like, you know, when I expect the fastened seatbelt sign to come on, that's okay. But when I don't, that's when things get weird. That's when things get uncomfortable. You know, and, and you know, when it comes on and... The turbulence hits, you're like, just get me out of this. Change altitude, whatever you got to do, pilot, let's get out of this quickly. You know, some of you have probably had scary encounters with this. Um, I will tell you a sick story about this. One of my friends in college was like ridiculous practical joker type. And um, every time he flew and they would hit turbulence, he would start screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die. And he did this many, many times until one guy sitting next to him wet his pants. I know, that's a terrible... Not funny. Not funny at all, right? Not funny at all. You know, um, some of you are like, that's really not funny because I am scared of flying. And yet, I want to actually tap into that a little bit this morning because we are as a, a people, as a nation, and many of us personally, in a place where turbulence has hit. You know, the fastened seatbelt has come on in our country, and it's not gone off. This past year, we've had the worst economic, uh, ecological disaster in the country's history. 
we're still in this recession that we're kind of like, are we going to get out of this deal? You know, the recession has continued. Many of you have felt that very personally. You know, 9-11 is not that far a distant memory for us as a, as a, as a uh, nation. And we're in this war in Afghanistan that seems to be kind of going on and on and on. And, you know, for us as a nation, the fastened seatbelt light has been on for years. Turbulence has been hitting for years. Some of you have felt this kind of turbulence fastened seatbelt light on personally this year. Some of you have, you know, have gotten the kind of news from a doctor that makes you feel like, you know, just get me out of this. You know, take me out of the altitude, change elevation, whatever you've got to do. Get me out of this. Some of you have experienced that because of your work, and you're, like, looking for jobs. You're radically underemployed right now. Or you're, you know that, like, you, your job is going to end at a particular point coming up. Some of you are in college or in grad school, and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to have a career to be able to pay for all this debt that I've just incurred. That would be awesome if that was waiting. Some of you have relationships where the fast and seat belt lights come on. You're like, I don't think this thing may go down. You know, we know turbulence. You know, we know that sense of the light coming on and staying on. And you're like, is this thing going to go off? I have good news for you. This book was written by people and for people who lived through such turbulence. It was written by people over and over again, by people whose lives weren't working out, who were facing great uncertainty and ambiguity about their own future. It was written by people who were not facing, life is great, I'm going to be sitting by a pool in the Virgin Islands with a fruity drink with an umbrella, but rather uncertainty about the very future of their existence. We're reading this passage this morning by a guy, Paul, who is in prison, writing to a group of people who themselves are facing great uncertainty and whose very charter, the very founding of their church came out of great uncertainty, great turbulence. You know, the Bible is such a, it's such a real life book for us because it doesn't, it doesn't write to, from people or to people who are living in like make-believe fantasy world. This is a book that speaks to where we live. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but when my life hits turbulence, when my life hits like this point of, you know, ambiguity, what's happening next, I don't know what's coming, I am like, I I just want whatever you can do to make things stop. You know, so, and I think that we come to the scriptures, many people come to the scriptures and they're like, they find the Bible to be entirely too passive. You know, I don't want to be... I, Jesus, you know, I don't really want to be led, guided through uncertainty of trials. I'd like you to kind of lead me around this. You know, I don't want to fasten my seatbelt. I just want the turbulence to go away. I don't want to be able to, like, sort of, you know, have to work my way through a hard season. I'd like to know where are the verses that tell me how God is going to solve the economic crisis end the war in Afghanistan, how God is going to restore my job, how God is going to give me the relationships I want, bring security. Where are those verses? And you may be frustrated in coming to the scripture, but I want to tell you, don't underestimate what God says about uncertainty. 
about ambiguity, about turbulence. One of the things that I find very helpful as we turn to this passage this morning is that it doesn't give what many of us think are the Christian answers to these things. It doesn't give the, the, the you know, pat Christian answers. Some of you, you know, have sort of grabbed onto one of these things and said, you know, surely this is what peace looks like in the middle of a storm. And, you know, we find the Bible doesn't tell us to do the two things that Christians mostly do. They mostly think the Bible says fake it or stop it with regard to the anxiety in your heart. You know, fake it. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to many of you walking through times of uncertainty and trial, and I've heard many of you say things like this. You know, I just wish I was like my dad, brother, uh, grandma, best friend. Nothing seems to rattle them. She seems completely unflappable. He seems totally okay in times of trial. And I remember sitting with one of you this spring, and this guy's talking about his mom. And, it, you know, I, I'm like, huh, that's an interesting statement. Tell me more about your mom. Your mom was completely unflappable. She was completely at peace. And we started talking, and I started asking more and more questions, and found out, no, no, that wasn't peace. That was apathy. That was indifference. See, it's easy to find counterfeits for peace, isn't it? You know, what may smell like peace and look like peace, deep down with this guy's mom was not a deep confidence in God, not some kind of deep faith, but rather indifference. You know, I see this also with Christians who do, do this. You know, um, the other kind of fake it, is it goes like this. So I'll ask you, how are you doing? And I know like, the stuff has hit the fan big time, but you, you should be struggling. And you know what I get? It's like, well, I'm fine. You know, all things work out for good. Fine. Really, I'm fine. And I'm like, really? You're fine? You know, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, let go and let God. Trust and obey. I'm fine. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're mad. You are so mad. And you don't know what to do with it. And we think that this is a Christian thing to do. You know, I'm trusting God. I can fake it. You know, the other thing that I think that Christians sometimes think, and you re- even if you read this passage of scriptures, you read this and it, it seems like statements. Rejoice. You know, be, be stand firm. Pray. And you hear these things and it's almost like the Bible's telling you, Stop it. Stop it. Just stop doing that. Stop being anxious. And we all know how ineffective that is. If you've ever woke I've used this example before for me personally. You wake up in the middle of the night, your head is just turning with stuff. You're like dress rehearsing all your problems. You're dress rehearsing what could be. And if you tell yourself, stop it, how many of you are able to go back to sleep just really just by saying stop it to yourself? Nobody. Nobody can do that. And the Bible doesn't do that. See, what we find in Scripture, and what I want to show you this morning, is that we have a God who knows our weakness. We have a God who knows how we're made. That we are weak. He doesn't say fake it to us in our fears. He doesn't say stop it. He comes and he speaks big truths to our fears. See, if you're like me, it's not the big things that keep you up at night. It's not like, I'm not laying awake at night thinking about the national debt. 
you know, or the, the, what's going to happen to Social Security? That doesn't bother me. The threat of atomic war. You know, what's going on in Afghanistan? Those things don't bother me at night. It's the small things, isn't it? Little bits of conversation. What did she mean by that? You know, little things that just, you're like, ah, oh, I just can't, I can't figure out how to get through this. And it's these little things, those tiny worries that are like sand, and they just get in there. You just can't get it out. I mean, it's just kind of like itching. Do you know what I'm saying? And yet, look at what we see in the Bible. The Bible speaks big truths, big truths to even our very small concerns. And so today, I want to look at this passage. And I want to tell you, there are three commands in this passage we're going to look at this morning, which are these. These these things, very briefly, we're going to say, stand, rejoice, and pray. But the Bible doesn't say, just stand, rejoice, and pray. That's what many of you expect, you know? Just do it. But the Bible says, stand on. See, it's connected to a deep truth. Stand on, rejoice in, pray through. Let's look at God's word together. I was going to start this sermon, at, actually at Philippians 4.1, because I let Jason preach all through chapter 3, but I, I realized Philippians 4.1 just says, therefore, stand firm. And as you look at Philippians 4.1, as it says, therefore, my Bible study leader in high school used to say, you know, when you see a therefore in Scripture, you have to say, what's that therefore? And you have to look back and say it's, it's referring back. So I wanted to show you that the Bible here... Paul, as he writes to these people, doesn't say, stand firm. He says, stand firm on something. We look back to 320, and this is what he says. This is the solid foundation. This is the foothold that he says is sure. This is what you stand on. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know, in 1952, there was a young woman named Florence Chadwick who was um, set, and and Julie used this illustration a while ago, so my nod to Julie. Um, This woman was set to swim uh, off the coast of California and be the first woman to to swim um, from Catalina Island to the mainland shore. And she was, she'd already set records because she was the first woman to swim both directions in the English Channel. And so she sets out to do this in 1952. Um, she gets set up. And the weather was very foggy and chilly that day. And so she takes the boat out to Catalina Island. She begins her swim. And she swims for 15 hours straight. And as she's swimming, she goes along and she she's gets to a point where she's just desperate. She's begging to be let out of the water. She's like, I'm done. I can't keep going. She can't see where she's going. The fog is so thick she can barely see the boat that's with her. And she begs her mom. She says, Mom, please let me in the boat. And her mom's like, no, you've got to keep going. You're so close. I know you could make it. And as she, she keeps going. Finally, she just stops swimming. And they have to pull her into the boat. And as they pull her in and they wrap her up, um, they take her to the shore. And the next day, she's being interviewed by the paper. And, and, and the... Um, Writer is saying, you know, aren't you disappointed? And she's like, yeah, I think I could have gone on if I had known I was just a half mile away. Just a half mile. Now, why didn't she make it? Because the fog is so thick. She's like, it's out there somewhere, but I just can't see it. 
You know, can you relate to that in your life? You know, for many of us, we live in a fog. You know, the uncertainty that you are facing right now, the sense of ambiguity, the sense of like, I don't know what's next, the, the sense that you're not sure that you can make life work in the future is like a heavy fog, and many of us are discouraged. Some of you are dragging in here this morning, and it's about all you can do is just to show up, and I'm glad you're here, because listen to these words. You know, we're not just called to stand firm in the face of these things, but to stand on something, to stand on the hope that there is a shoreline, there is a future, you know, we, we talked this winter, I preached a whole series on heaven and on the future. And I think that it's really important for Christians to think about these things. This was the North Star to past generations. This is the North Star by which people said, I know that today is uncertain, next week is uncertain, next year is uncertain, but I know there's a destination. I know I'm not just swimming. I know I'm not just kind of keeping going. There's somewhere we're going. You know, at root, the confidence that God is taking us somewhere in the fog means that you place in God's hands, in the only hands that are capable of holding on to your future, you place your future in those hands. You give God the ambiguity and the uncertainty. You say, I know what's happening. You know, doesn't the sense of anxiety feel like trying to stand in quicksand? I mean, if you have really dealt with worry, if you have really dealt with anxiety, you know that you're like, I can't find anything to stand on. I feel like I'm just sinking in this, you know, mess. And yet the Bible tells us, look, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm on the hope that you're not just swimming somewhere. There is one who knows where, who holds your future and his are the only hands that are capable of holding on to that. You know, this is about placing in God's hands what only God's hands are capable of holding on to. Stand firm. Second, he says, rejoice. See that in, in chapter 4? He says, chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, this is... The hardest part of this passage for me to get, it, isn't it for you? Yeah, rejoice, Paul. Yeah, you're in prison right now. Happy times. Rejoice in this. And, you know, why is that so hard for our modern ears? Why, why is the call to rejoice in the sense of we're in the midst of worry, in the midst of anxiety, why is that so hard for you? I'll tell you why it's hard for me. It's because I think of rejoicing as a spontaneous reaction to something. You know, I go, I go out to a good meal. I, I rejoice in a great dinner. Hey, this was awesome. You know, I rejoice when I find $10 in my jeans. Right? Don't you? You know, you rejoice when you get a tax return. We rejoice in response to things that happen to us. And so for Paul to say, this is not passive. This is a decision. That, like, that's like static on the airwaves for many of us. Like, what do we do with that? What, how, do we, how do we think about this? Paul doesn't say, close your eyes and click your heels together and sort of just be happy. Pretend like it's all fake. 
you know, there, there is a brand of Eastern religion that believes, like, this is what you do. You just pretend. You sort of act like what is really true and what's really not. And the Bible was open-eyed, unblinking, in terms of looking at problems and trials and not saying, these aren't real. What's the difference? This is not my illustration. Again, I borrowed this from someone else. Maturing as a follower of Jesus. Maturing as a follower of Jesus means beginning to see the world through the lens of Christ. Now, when I was in middle school, I got glasses. And many of you have gotten glasses at some point. And you know that, like, getting glasses is weird. You know, you get glasses and you're, all you can think about the first, while you get the glasses, is that I have these on my head, right? You know, you've, you've, you're like, you're just so aware of the glasses. You're looking at the glasses. All you see is the, the frames. And for a, a while there, you just kind of, it's, it's hard to think of anything ex- else except I have glasses on. But after a while, you get used to it, and you begin to look through them. You begin to, and you, you'll forget that you have them on your head, right? Maturing as a person who knows God is very much like this. And you can, you can apply this in lots of areas in your life. You know, as a young Christian, your goal is like, I want you to gaze upon Jesus. I want you to be a very aware of him and to see him all, you know, seeing Christ, really have a sense of like, okay, this is who God, really, Jesus really is. But maturing as a Christian means you begin to say, what does the world look like through Jesus? You know, if I could put Jesus on like a pair of glasses... Maturing in him means you begin to look through that lens. And you look at your money differently. You begin to say, my goals and relationships, they're changing. What I do with what I have, I I, I look through this lens and I see the world differently. But this is all the more true with regard to uncertainty and worry and anxiety. Because you begin to look through those lenses... At those situations. And so Paul says, you know, look, he doesn't say pretend like they're not there. He's looking through Christ and he says rejoice. Rejoice in what? Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I'll say rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. You know, Rejoice in that the Lord is near. When Paul wrote these words, see, some of you are struggle with this kind of stuff in the Bible because you're like, this sounds simplistic, this sounds trite, but these Philippians knew. The first people who got this letter from this guy, Paul, they knew that this wasn't simplistic or trite. Here's why. Here's the story behind this passage. Paul, when he, Silas, when they came to Philippi, this colony... When they came to that city, they began to walk around and meet people. And there wasn't a synagogue they could go into, so they went down by the river. And the first person who was part of their church was a woman named Lydia. And she invited them into her home. And they began just to go around the city every day and meet people. Well, they meet this, there's this young woman who's a slave and who was employed as a fortune teller in the city of Philippi because she had some kind of clairvoyance with which she could tell the future. And her slave owners employed her, basically made money off of her, by having her tell people's fortunes in the marketplace. Well, this woman, this young girl, follows Paul and Silas around and is 
as they're walking through town saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They're going to tell you how to be saved. And for whatever reason, this kind of advertising was not real welcomed by Paul. And so he turns around after a couple days and says, demon, come out of her. And there's an exorcism. And suddenly she's not able to be used as a fortune teller anymore. She's worthless as far as her slave owners go. So the slave owners come and they have Paul and Silas arrested. They have them thrown into jail. There's no due process. There's no trial. There's no arraignment. They're thrown in jail and they're beaten. And they're sitting in jail in the middle of the night, bleeding in stocks and singing praise songs. They're rejoicing. They're filled with joy. So when these Philippians hear these words, rejoice, Paul's writing in yet another jail. He says it twice to them, rejoice. These people, you better believe that they were like, I know that this guy is for real. This isn't simplistic. This isn't trite. Paul is rejoicing because God is at hand. God is with him. You know, looking through Jesus at this world in the midst of your trials is to look through those lenses and say, I can see. These things are real. The things I'm worried about, they're not pretend. But God has not abandoned me. God has not let me go. Do we live like God is real and he's at hand? You know, sometimes I'm struck by our language. If you've, if you've been to any of our home meetings or, or come here regularly, sometimes we use language when we talk about God that makes it sound like God goes on vacation. You know, so we'll pray for someone who's going through something hard and we'll say, God, would you just be with that person right now? Why are we praying that? Has God gone to Florida for the weekend? No, God is here. God is ever present, the Bible tells us. You know, God is not away or gone. You know, we say, you know, God, we ask you to be with us here tonight in our home meetings. What? God's promised to be with us here. Amen? You know, when we talk about these things... Functionally, admit it. I think about, I think, you think that God has gone somewhere. When you're in the middle of worries and doubts and insecurity, at 2 a.m. when you're awake and you're dress rehearsing your problems, aren't you saying, God must be absent? He must be away somewhere. Rejoice. The Lord is at hand. He has not abandoned you. You know, um, This is the best news for us when we're anxious. This is the best news with us when we're anxious. God has not left you alone. Stand firm. Stand in. Rejoice in. Finally, pray through. Pray through. Most of us know something about prayer, even if you're not a Christian and... You know, we have lots of folks who come to our church who are in different stages of wrestling with who God is. But most people have prayed. Most people have at least prayed the Lord help me prayer. The Lord rescue me prayer. Lord fix this prayer. And this passage talks about those kind of prayers. Supplications, requests. God, would you intervene here? But this passage ties together two things that we really need to think about this morning. 
Verse 7 promises that the God of peace, the peace of God, will be with you as you pray. Pray these things and the peace of God will be with you. And yet, you know that that's not automatic. Many of you have prayed and you're like, I've prayed and nothing seems to happen. You know, my favorite advertising campaign of the last couple of years is the Staples, the Staples ad that has the big red button. So here's how the ad looks, okay? A bunch of people are frantically trying to do some project. They're in some kind of office space, and they're all working together. They're trying to, they're, they're pulling their hair out because nothing's happening. The copier's breaking down. You know, they're running out of paper. Nothing is working. And then someone remembers the Staples button. And they go and they pull out this big bright red button that says easy on it. And they mash the button and suddenly the project is done. You know, everything comes together because staples is the solution. You know, and many of us are like, that's what prayer should be like. And I'm sort of mashing the button over and over. Why isn't this working out? It's not easy. You know, many of us know this. We're like, I have been praying. And yet, the, God of, the, the peace of God that's promised here in verse 7, it's not here. Where is it? Where is it when I need it? You know, I think there's a deliberate connection here. This is not Bible, Bible commentary, one, you know, higher thinking. This is very basic. There's a connection between verse 7 and verses 8 and 9. So verse 7 says, Pray... Therefore, the peace of God will be with you. Verse 8 and 9 says, Think on these things, whatever's true, right? Therefore, the God of peace will be with you. you. Hear that? Peace of God, verse 7. God of peace, verses 8 and 9. I think that those two are very connected for us. See, thinking and praying together is called meditation. Thinking and praying together is called meditation. Now, I know what many of you think of when you hear the word meditation. You picture monks somewhere, you know, up in a you know, monastery up in the Misty Mountains. You know, we don't... But let me tell you, you and I meditate all the time. Anxiety and worry are meditation. We are taking something and we're turning it over and over and over in our brains. I can't remember where I got this from. A friend of mine... Uh, reminded me of this recently, that both fear and faith are future-looking. Both fear and faith are future-looking. Anxiety, worry, is a form of meditation. You know, think about where you are in your day in those kind of white spaces. You ever heard that phrase before? The white spaces where you're, you're like taking a shower. What are you thinking about? You're driving a car. You're riding a bus. You're riding a bike. You're going somewhere, and you don't have to fully engage mentally in what you're doing. And so your brain goes somewhere else, and it usually goes to a place of meditation. And for many of us, what we're meditating on in those moments are things that are not true, not encouraging. We don't know if they're going to happen. We're, 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 they're, they're based on lies about ourselves, lies about God, and lies about the world. Everybody hates me. I'm such a loser. God's abandoned me. We meditate on those things. You know, Paul's exhortation here is to meditate. Remember on this passage? What is true? What is right? What is noble? What is excellent? What is worthy of praise? It's like 
having the right fuel for the fire. And, you know, what is noble and excellent and true and worthy of praise? His word. His word is excellent and true and noble and worthy of praise. I've been thinking a lot about the power of God's word recently. Some of you know this famous passage in Isaiah 55 that says, you know, just like the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they water the ground and they produce the crops. So God's word comes in power and produces what he wants. It's effective. It's productive. God's word, as it impacts, interacts with your life, it does something. You know, but the passage also says this. Instead of, it says this in Isaiah 55, instead of the thorn bush, there's going to grow a pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. What's he saying? What's Isaiah saying in that passage? He says God's word has a way of cleaning out the junk. God's word has a way in your life of sort of cleaning out the stuff that's grown up there, that's prickly, that's destructive, that's choking out life. And when God's word, when you meditate on this, when you put this power into your life, it's like fuel for a fire. And it does something. It produces joy. It produces peace. You know, the peace of God comes when we connect the deep truths, whatever's true and right and noble and excellent and worthy of praise. We plug those things deep into our lives and we begin to meditate on them. We pray over God's word. You know, you swap the source material for your meditations. Think about what you're meditating on. It's time to swap out some of that source material because it's not producing life in you. Fill your mind with his word. You know, I know that this, and I'll wrap up here, but I know that this is probably a very frustrating sermon to some of you. Some of you are like, good, okay, an actual practical sermon, (laughs) one that's not just... Kind of like thoughts about God. A practical sermon. How to get through anxiety and worry. Good deal. I'm glad I'm here this Sunday. And yet all I've told you are things that are sort of practical, but sort of seem to be coming around to the same point. You know, this isn't, a, I'm not, this isn't rocket science. You know, because, you know, many of you come into this place and you're doing product testing. And you're like, I've tried lots of other things in my life. To make worry and anxiety go away. I exercise. I try to get some good sleep. I'm trying to, you know, uh, I, I read lots of books about how to manage, you know, techniques. And I've given you no techniques this morning. I've given you rejoice. You know, rejoice in God, you know. Stand firm in his future. I've said, you know, you know to, to do these things, to think and pray, it's not real techniques. Because what the Bible tells us is that, You can't separate these two things. Many of you come in here and you say, I would like the peace of God. That sounds good. Peace of God, yes. Some more of that. Sprinkle a little of that on my life this week. That would be great. Thank you. And what I've shown you is that there's no peace of God in your life. God will not give that without, as it says in verse 9, giving you the God of peace. You can't separate the peace of God from the God of peace. See, these are all relationship terms. God is a relational God. He, he's saying, look, you know, what, you, you know what you need? is not some techniques. You need me. More of me in your life. More awareness, 
more celebration, more living with those glasses on, more rejoicing when the, when the, check, when the uh, fastened seatbelt light comes on. You know, seeing that God is real and he's present and he's at work in your life. This year we've been dealing with a lot of fear in our family. I have a four-year-old who is deathly afraid of dogs. And, you know, we've been trying to help him kind of overcome this. And some of you have seen this. But this is a problem living in Philly. Because we can't walk one block any direction without running into somebody with a dog. You know, I think there are more dogs than people in my neighborhood sometimes. Right? So, you know, we're walking somewhere and he is like trembling. You know, grabbing on to us. You know, it's a, it's a paralyzing fear for him. And yet, so, you know, many of you have... Many other people outside of our church community have engaged him, you know, or tried to talk to him or given us helpful advice, things like this, you know. Well, well maybe, um, maybe he needs just to, you know, you should help him face his fear, put him in a pen with a nice dog. And then, you know, he'll kind of have to face this and work through it, and he'll be okay. You know, or... Or, you know, other people, you know, in talking to him are like, there's nothing, to be, there, there's nothing to be afraid of with dogs. Dogs are nice. And, you know, both of those tactics, hey, muscle through or ration, like talk your way through stuff, neither of those have really worked. Neither of those, I think, are very effective. The one thing that's worked this summer has been presence, being with mom and dad. Facing the dog. Meeting the dog. Mom and dad are with you. You know, see, it's not true, is it, that there's nothing to be afraid of. In my neighborhood, there's lots of dogs to be afraid of. I don't want him to be, I can't tell him the lie that there's nothing to be afraid of in this world. You know, and it doesn't help to abandon him to his fear and to tell him to kind of get over it. What does help is the presence. See, brothers and sisters, you have a God who is with you. You have a God who is with you. Who doesn't abandon you to your fears when the fastened seatbelt light comes on in your life and doesn't go off. Who doesn't just say, muscle through it, get over it when the turbulence of your life hits. We have a God who says, I am with you. I am with you. Over and over again, you see people, just like us, people who are full of fear. And God comes to them. You read this over and over in Scripture, and God comes to them, and He doesn't say, stop it, fake it. He says, don't be afraid. I am with you. You know, how do you know if you're seeking the peace of God or the God of peace? It's when the moments of turbulence hit. Sure, and you cry out to him. Everybody does. But do you want him? I think it's no surprise that my four-year-old's favorite song that wants to sing every night in our family devotion time is from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the heavens. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And the psalm goes on to talk about how he will never leave us. He is always present with us. There's a reason why that song matters to my son. It helps him to walk through uncertainty. How much more you?
You know, if that helps a four-year-old deal with a fear of little dogs, how much more you? How much more sophisticated is your mind to be able to open up Scripture and say, God is real. His power is without knowing. He has a destination where he is taking me. And he is with me in this place. How much more you? Has your heavenly father abandoned you? Has he abandoned you with your fear? Brothers and sisters, what an amazing father. What a glorious savior. What an incredible presence. Rejoice. Stand firm. Pray through these things. The God of peace will be with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.